Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. This podcast is our Halloween edition. Instead of trick-or-treating, we'll work on what we hope is a treat for you, our intrepid listener. We feel adventurous by undertaking an economic and financial evaluation just days before the election, knowing this will be posted a day or two after the election. Good luck to us all throughout the balance of this year. May 2021 be a better year for all, and especially with respect to global health and a return to healthy economic and family circumstances. Thank you for some additional questions, which I'll address now as best I can. One question is what to expect relative to the next major directional move in the stock market. And the other question is, what are the expectations for jobs in 2021? At UCLA Extension, our mission is higher education and career preparation. So I'll take a few extra minutes to construct bridges between major trends and likely outcomes. These so-called bridges are intended to give you suggestions for helping you consider your own new bridges to either an enhanced career path or a new career altogether. So here goes, and we'll start with the economic part. I'll repeat one of the key themes in our podcast series. Focus as much as you can on the largest money managers and their money movements. The 100 or so largest managers of money pools are far more important than the millions of individual investors and the thousands of mutual funds. As you know, in most any profession, there are leaders and there are followers. Investment funds are really concentrated in the hands of a few around the world, and these few tend to lead the many others who want to jump on board. Earning today's tiny returns on bonds motivates many to become hypersensitive about missing perceived opportunities in stocks. As we've seen in the past, stock market declines and recoveries change far faster than economic conditions, especially today with the many volatile issues, both economic and political. Even large groups of trend followers like mutual funds and retirement funds find it too challenging to achieve their historical rates of return. In our financial planning classes, we discuss mutual funds, which rarely outperform the large stock indices after the mutual fund management fees are deducted from their customer accounts. As we've also discussed in prior podcasts, the largest money pool managers include BlackRock, which manages over $7 trillion of assets and also include the large sovereign wealth funds of China and the oil-producing countries, plus Goldman Sachs, Vanguard Group, Allianz, J.P. Morgan, Chase, and so on. For perspective, the entire U.S. bond market has an approximate $40 trillion value and the U.S. stock market about $30 trillion. So BlackRock's $7 trillion is about 10% of the value of the entire U.S. bond market and stock market combined. Pretty significant, right? Current large investment information, as you'd imagine, is hard to come by. 
but I do share it whenever possible, as I've done in the prior two podcasts. For now, we need to keep one eye on the large portfolio changes of the large players that do become public, and one eye on the key trends with their apparent changes in trend, which do represent the sum of large money manager decisions. Here are some recent market trends in this context before we move directly to answer the question on the stock market. The large third quarter GDP increase of over 33% reported this past week only gets the economy back to the 0809 Great Recession trough or drop off, which in total dropped the U.S. gross domestic product by an annual 4%. That's where we are now. We are 4% down from a year ago, which was where we were at the worst part of the 0809 Great Recession. An improvement for sure but not a cause for great celebration. There's an important difference now. In 08, 09, we built upward momentum back to pre-recession levels. Now, on the eve of our elections, we see no continuing momentum and further anticipate our fourth quarter will return to very low or even negative growth. Long story short, evidence is gaining we are moving back into a new recession or, at a minimum, stagflation. In other words, no growth with inflation. We are week 31 in the collapse of the U.S. labor market. Don't let the frequent or the Thursday morning reports of new unemployment fool you. These official reports present the total of new unemployment claims filed under state, again, under state insured plans and they remain approximately 750,000 of new claims or more each week. This is about half of what was reported a week back in the late summer. So we've gone from about a million five per week to about 750,000 per week. That's an improvement. But for more accurate perspective, we need to look at total U.S. unemployment, which is the sum of these Thursday morning state reports, plus the now even larger federal program unemployment reports, which are a little bit harder to find. And these continuing claims are really significant. And now they are more significant than the state claims. I'll tell you why. And this will save you some time. The state claims peaked in late April at 22 million. That's the continuing claims. And dropped to 8 million in late October, a week or so ago. And yes, that's a big drop and a reported improvement in the state government reported unemployment rate. However, during the same period, the federal PUA and POEUC new stimulus plans grew from offering benefits from zero unemployed in April, they just started, to 15 million in October. 15 million making the total U.S. continuing claims a total of the 8 million from the state reports, plus 15 million now from the federal unemployment programs, or a total of 23 million, which is about 15% of the labor force. To this 15 million, we still need to add those unemployed who didn't qualify for either the state or federal plans, and this may add another 10 million in my view. Over the past 10 plus years, we know that small business has accounted for about 70% of all jobs created. So consider these facts. The employers of 50 to 500 employee companies furloughed or laid off 20% of their employees in March and April. So far, they've hired back about half of them, and they hired them back in May and June. 
since June, not many more have been hired back. Not exactly high momentum recovery, right? Many families across the United States were kept afloat with initial stimulus payments, but a combination of lackluster hiring, growing business bankruptcies, and no further stimulus has created serious consumer and financial issues. A comprehensive recent survey of approximately 2,000 households concluded the following worrisome facts, which are only about a month old. 52% of families reported they had only one to three months of financial assets to pay their bills in the event of job loss, and many have lost their jobs. Even more worrisome are these data collected in the survey. In terms of auto loans outstanding, 27% have missed auto loan payments, and 26% are likely to skip future payments. Even their cable and internet bill, 25% have missed payments, and 29% are likely to skip future payments. Rent, pretty much the same. 20% have missed their rent payments, and 26% expect to skip future payments. Mortgage, 17% of all those surveyed have missed mortgage payments, and 21% expect to skip future payments. This goes on even to health insurance, which we all know is really important. 10% of health payments have been skipped already, and expectations that 15% more in the future will be skipped. So what's the impact on the U.S. industries in the great third quarter that was just reported? The up 33% gross domestic product for the third quarter. Well, energy in the third quarter is down 31% in revenues. Industrial products are down 17%. Materials are down 7%. These are revenues of the companies that are in these industries. Real estate revenues are down 6%. And all revenues of the Standard & Poor's 500 companies for the quarter are down 3%. And that includes healthcare companies, which actually were up 8%. Today's lingering and large layoffs and overall high unemployment imply the following over future months. A drop in consumption, which is not a continuation of the third quarter gross domestic product growth. We don't see momentum in this area. Additionally, we see losses in commercial and residential real estate increasing particularly as eviction processes are put in motion and protective legislation expires. We see continued drop in new business investment as U.S. industry is operating well below present capacity, with some exceptions in rebuilding supply chains. There are some exceptions, but overall, across the economy, the continued drop in new business investment actually means lack of creation of new jobs. New investment in business creates new jobs. We see increased bad debt losses across the board, including credit cards, mortgage debt, and college debts. So now we're ready for the stock market question. I would refer you to a source. The name is Advisor Perspectives, which is one word. Advisorperspectives.com, published in October 2020. Summary of major historical valuation indicators for the stock market. They've included standard deviations. They've compared or contrasted today's high values with the whole history going back to 1900, but particularly pointing out that today we are as high or possibly higher now than the indices were during the dot-com, just preceding the dot-com bust. And we are way higher 
than what preceded the 08-09 Great Recession, and also at historical highs, again, looking at four valuation indicators, looking at deviations from the mean. I don't want to get too technical, but their combined index of valuation is 141 now. The high during the Great Depression was 73. The high during the 08-09, just before the 08-09 Great Recession, was approximately 60. So we are 141, a bit higher than 141, which is approximately the height reached just prior to the dot-com bust in 2000. In looking at their standard deviations, a move of only one standard deviation from the mean, let me just say the downside exposure to be less quantitative about it. In their view, the stock market exposure now is a 20 to 30% decline would be not inconsistent with the past 120 years of tracking the stock market indices and standard deviations. Additionally, Warren Buffett, as everyone knows, has developed his indicators which, which he publishes. Again, you could go to uh, advisorperspectives.com and they do have the Buffett indicator, which is looking at corporate equity prices versus the gross domestic product. The Buffett indicator is at an all-time high. Prior to the dot-com bust for numerical comparison, it was 159. Today, we're at about 172 or a little bit higher. And if we go back to the prior high, it was in the late 1960s, and it was only an 87 index number. So the Buffett indicator is quite substantially high. And Warren Buffett, as I've mentioned in past podcasts, has actually made changes in his portfolio that are public. He has sold his airline stocks. He has sold his bank stocks. He has bought shares of one of the largest gold mining companies. Every 90 days, we can see his portfolio changes. So this will be continuing as a part of the podcast. We'll check in and look for trends. But selling all the airlines in the banks is certainly unusual in the past quarter. Finally, we have a comparison which has been published by Edward Yardini. Ed Yardini is one of the most respected economists on Wall Street, has been for three or four decades. He now has his own company named Yardini Research, Y-A-R-D-E-N-I. You can look that up, www.yardini.com. And Ed Yardini is also looking at the operating earnings per share of the Standard & Poor's 500 companies. He's looking at estimates for all of this year, next year, and the following year. And if we look at what would be normal price-earnings ratios based upon his earnings projections, the Standard & Poor's index would be approximately 20% lower today than it actually is. And with a also normal range where the price-earnings ratio is 16, which is actually a median or a truly normal range uh, price for over a period of decade. Applying a PE of 16, the Standard & Poor's 500 would be down uh, over 30%. So now let's try to answer these questions. What is the next directional movement in the stock market? Well, by most measures, the U.S. stock market is overvalued and is so overvalued that it sort of rings the alarm bells of every major party who has been researching the stock market for a long, long time. My conclusion is it's due for a significant downward move. It may have started already, maybe not, but over the next several months, a major downward move, regardless of who wins the election and who loses it. Historically, the stock market drops in the days before a major election, 
and rises in the days following, no matter the winter. It's worth considering that the Federal Reserve has pumped up money creation and liquidity prior to the election, and they may not be so enthusiastic about continuing the magnitude of their money creation after the election. In fact, we should note that monies still remain to be used in the Fed's many stimulus plans. In other words, they weren't all used. And that could imply that all of those who could use it have used it, and that making more money available in their existing plans may not have any effect. And that alone may take some pressure off the Fed to keep pumping the money supply through their programs. Even more negatively, the Fed may have done all it can do, and doing more may not help that much across the board. In fact, doing more, which it will in any event do, in my view, the Fed will contribute to support the bond market. They will continue to support money creation because that's necessary to buy U.S. government bonds. So I think that part will continue. I'm not so sure about their existing programs. They may put together new programs that will address new audiences. In my opinion, all of what they already have done will result in higher inflation, and they've already announced that's okay with them. Overall, the Federal Reserve... Buying of government bonds will continue and money supply will continue to grow, albeit in a stair-step fashion, in respect to crises. On the eve of a crisis, as has been the case in the past six to eight months, the Federal Reserve puts together new responses, and they can be expected to keep doing that. And don't forget that all the cities states, and quasi-governmental entities need more and more cash as tax collections are down. And it takes a while to raise taxes, thankfully. So their new bonds that they are going to need to issue need a buyer. So welcome again to the Federal Reserve. It's not just a federal budget deficit problem. It's also state county, and city. On the other hand, the Fed's new facilities to make loans available to small businesses may be complete, as most borrowers seem to be actually avoiding them in the most recent months. And maybe new ones will surface, and these will be totally forgivable loans, as opposed to the loans that are forgivable on certain conditions, which may not have been acceptable to businesses. Either way, the Fed has pretty much done what it can do for the businesses, which unfortunately paints a dreary picture for new expansion of our workforce. More stimulus will be set up by Congress, regardless of who wins the election, in my view. Congress can put more money in people's pockets, and that will keep a number of families in a position to pay their monthly bills. Not all of them, but it will help. will require, in my view, a month to generate new stimulus, and to get any new stimulus in the hands of the families. So there's a lag time, and uh, we now are going into November. I think it's unrealistic that any new program would be put together by uh, congressional approval, even approaching the middle of November. So time is moving by, and it's getting pretty late in the game to save a lot of families who financially are unsustainable right now. The longer-term problem is that any new stimulus cannot be distributed, and we're losing December now by going into November without a new stimulus approved. So we can expect a continuation of personal and business bankruptcies, particularly small businesses. And as I mentioned in recent podcasts, uh, I personally made stock market decisions in September to avoid the October, November, December uncertainties. And that was my personal risk management decision, was not advice. We don't give advice but I'm transparent about what I think. My worst case is buying back into the stock market at higher prices next year. And my best case is to avoid one 
two or more major sell-offs, which are pretty typical during a recovery from a major recession or depression. My own expectation is that our recovery is stalling for reasons just mentioned and that the really large investors will be reluctant to bid stocks up from today's near historical highs if we assume a stalled recovery and stagnant business earnings next year. For the Standard & Poor's 500 companies, a stock market decline of 20 or 30 percent seems to me more likely than a continued uptrend from today's high levels. In any event, we'll soon see. What are my job expectations for 2021? We will continue to see more employers looking to hire for high-paying jobs. You can check Indeed.com or other online search sources to verify this for yourself. We're in a good period to prepare for these high-paying jobs by updating our own knowledge and credentials, especially in areas that relate to our specific occupations, pretty much all occupations. We need to work more effectively and efficiently remotely as home offices and work from home will continue in a major way. Working smarter is more than just a statement. It's better marketing ourselves and our businesses. It's more effective use of B2B and B2C communications and more teamwork with vendors also, including new efforts to build stronger and more responsive supply chains whatever business we're in. Competition has already moved so rapidly to to a national and global scale versus last year's more local and regional workforces. We just have to respond if we want to continue to reach for higher paying positions. It's true that there will always be a need for retail salespeople, construction workers, transportation workers, administrative assistants, customer service representatives, food servers, and entry-level customer-facing jobs But the chronic unemployment issues will present many challenges in addition to COVID. Many occupations will face labor substitution risks due to continuing automation, new artificial intelligence applications presently in a rollout format in financial institutions, robotics, including new generations of automated cooks, hamburger flippers, and even servers, as well as the upcoming driverless trucks and cars. The gig economy has a lot of potential for those who maintain their expertise and grow their skills, but offers bare subsistence to those not focused on self-improvement and continuing preparation. In California in particular, most gig economy jobs are supplemental to family income. They just don't pay enough to offer primary support for an individual, much less a family. Key exceptions that do pay enough are the highest paying producing real estate agent or broker practices, software and networking specialists, certain healthcare positions, and contract paralegal practices, to name a few. This week, we focused on the two questions relating to the stock market and to future job preparation. Our next podcast will discuss the likely impact of the elections on our really fragile or stalled recovery, including implications for investors. In the meantime, be well, be safe, and be financially careful. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. 
These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.